word nerd, wordsmith, wordy, wordless. Oxford Dictionary says a word is a single distinct meaningful element of speech or writing, used with others or sometimes alone. We say each one matters. No extra words is literature, minimalist style. And we're getting you right to the story. Frozen Food by Francis de Clemente Our Grandma Carol forbade us from going into her kitchen after midnight. She claimed the freezer was possessed. She said one time a bag of frozen mixed vegetables pushed a carton of vanilla ice cream out of the freezer and onto the floor where the ice cream turned liquid by morning. She said the two food groups never got along well. One hot August night in 1982, when I was seven years old, I had trouble sleeping and disobeyed Grandma's rule. I slipped out of bed and made my way to the kitchen. I needed a cherry popsicle to cool my throat. But when I opened the freezer, I found my Grandpa Paul's head resting inside. It was sandwiched between some ground beef patties and an angel food cake from the supermarket. His blue eyes were looking back at me, and I shut the door right away. I ran into Grandma's room to ask her about it. I shook her shoulders, and when she woke up, she asked, "'What is a child?' "'Grandma,' I said, "'Grandpa's head is in the freezer.' "'Of course it is. Who do you think put it there? Now go back to bed and don't bother me again.' The next morning, after we finished breakfast, she took me aside in the kitchen and said, Now, Henry, don't you worry about what you saw last night. Grandpa's just getting his frozen therapy as prescribed by the doctor. It helps with his sinuses. Okay, Grandma, I said and started to walk away toward the living room where my sister Margaret was watching a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Then I stopped and turned around. Grandma, where's the rest of Grandpa now? I asked. She finished rinsing a pan in the sink, draped the dish towel over her shoulder, and smiled at me. Don't you worry about that, she said. You just go and watch TV with your sister. I sat on the couch next to my sister as a number of follow-up questions ran through my head. I knew Grandma wouldn't answer them, though, so I kept quiet. I crept into the kitchen again that night and opened the freezer door. Grandpa's head was still inside, but this time he opened his eyes and said, Hey, who's there? It's me. Henry. Henry, my boy, can't you see Grandpa's trying to get some sleep? Yes, I know. I'm sorry. But I have to know, where's the rest of your body? Grandpa laughed. Oh, Henry, you must be joking. I have no idea. Your grandma never tells me where she puts things. Try the freezer downstairs. Okay, I said. I was about to shut the door and leave the kitchen when I said, Wait a second, Grandpa. How can you live without your body? I don't know, he said. Somehow I just do. I guess you can get used to anything if you have to. Now shut the door and let me get back to sleep. All right. Good night, Grandpa, I said. Good night. I shut the freezer door and turned off the overhead light. I was going to head back to bed and check the basement freezer in the morning, but I realized Grandma would be awake then and I wouldn't be able to sneak downstairs. I knew my chance to act was now. I walked around the corner, opened the cellar door, hit the light switch, and closed the door behind me. I went down the basement steps and saw the large GE freezer tucked in a corner near the gas furnace. I opened the freezer door. Frozen ground beef patties, hot dogs, and buns rested on the bottom shelf. On the top shelf, I saw what looked like human body parts packed in clear plastic bags and stacked on top of each other. On the edge of the shelf was a strip of masking tape with black sharpie writing. It read, Paul's Parts. I shut the freezer door. I couldn't believe what I had seen. I had to look again to make sure. I opened the door, and what I noticed this time was even more frightening. 
There were two empty shelves just below Grandpa's shelf. Both were labeled with masking tape and Sharpie writing. One said, for Henry, and the other read, for Margaret. I slammed the freezer door. Just then I heard the cellar door creak, followed by a loud voice. Henry, what are you doing down there? You get back to bed right now. I didn't say anything. My heart raced and I struggled to catch my breath. Henry, I know it's you. Answer me. Sorry, Grandma, I said, my voice sounding like a frog's croak. Then I lied and said, I just wanted to see if we had any more popsicles. No, I keep them upstairs, Grandma said. If they're all gone, I'll buy you some more tomorrow. Now come to bed. Okay. Coming. I started walking upstairs and saw Grandma's dark figure outlined at the top of the stairs. When I got to the top step, she switched off the cellar light and closed the door. As we walked back to bed, she pulled me close to her and whispered, Don't worry about that freezer downstairs. I just use it for extra storage. Charybdis by Michelle Daughter I was passing tonight through a back parking lot when I overheard a woman telling a man about how each of us exists in God. It was a philosophy I felt like I'd heard before, though I couldn't have named the particulars. He uses each of us in a different way. One of us is the hand, one is the foot, one is the eye. She went on, but I passed her at that point and stopped listening as her voice got farther away. I couldn't help wondering what that made all the rest of us, six thousand skin cells endlessly dying, maybe, being sloughed off and eternally replaced, the cosmological trash of a religious universe. A good argument, perhaps, for the necessity of the existence of sinners. Still, I had to wonder what God would do when he constructed the holy body if we all got to play major roles. The woman had even skipped fingers and toes. Excluding the skin cell interpretation, it seemed to me that God had two options. A. He could use all of us to create not one, but hundreds of holy bodies, a holy army, a melange of mismatched limbs, no doubt envying each other the company we were keeping. Or B. The holy body could host infinite eyes and feet and hands bursting from every orifice, a bastardized Vishnu, an Argus quilt of faithful flesh, Charybdis in sacred organs. Hi there! Welcome to No Extra Words, the Flash Fiction Podcast. My name is Chris Baker Dirsch. I'm your producer and editor. I don't think I realized it at the time that I was putting this episode together, but the episode format for today is a lot like what you're going to see in April. It's kind of a poetry month preview where you've got the two stories on either side of something that is prose poem-ish. Charybdis is not really a poem. It, it came to us as a story, but it has some of that vibe to it as a prose poem might. So you've got two stories that are doing the work of a story and then the glue that's holding them together in the middle is the poem. Today we're doing some of the parts and it is a very different interpretation depending on which story you're hearing about the whole being more than the pieces that it's made up of. So in the first one, you heard Frozen Food, which is a pretty literal parts story. Um, 
I just I the that story touches my funny bone in a way that I can't really explain. And then you have Charybdis. A Charybdis is actually a monster. So the title of that story, the idea of if we all really were hands and feet and eyes of the universe and you put us together, we would turn into something maybe not horrible, but certainly alarming and disquieting, I think, is what Charybdis is telling us. Um, and coming up next, Sarah Mitchell Jackson takes a very everyday object that becomes much bigger than what it actually is. You're going to hear the chair. Sarah Mitchell Jackson is one of our Contributor Appreciation Month winners, so you're also going to be hearing more from her in the very near future. And without giving away what the chair is about, I will only say it was fun to read the story as someone who used to teach middle school, and it did not surprise me at all when I talked to Sarah and found out that she also was a former teacher. But you don't, I don't, I don't think you have to be a teacher to appreciate what the chair is and what the chair becomes in the story. So I like the different approach that each of the three writers take today. We're going to conclude with the chair, and I'm going to get you to that right now. And I will see you next time here on No Extra Words. The Chair by Sarah Mitchell Jackson What is this chair doing in the middle of the room? he asked. That wasn't really what he wanted to know. He really wanted someone to come and pick it up. Not much, sir. Lying on its side. Sleeping? He ignored them all and righted the chair himself before turning around and reading something slightly obscene on the blackboard. He was probably the only person who still had to use a blackboard, but the school was old and shockingly under-resourced. He smudged the wrongly spelt swear word with his left hand while writing the date with his right. I wish you lot would learn to spell, he tutted, but drew the line at actually telling them the correct spelling. There was a collective groan cum sigh as various pubescent bodies melted into their seats. Condensation, he started the lesson, knowing from that first word that it was likely to be an uphill struggle all the way. The chair was there in his dream, lying on its back, the leatherette-coated seat upside down on the floor beside it. It looked old and abandoned. Even in his dream, he thought it was ominously significant that a neglected piece of furniture should feature so prominently. "'Mr. Hart,' the head teacher called after him that morning after assembly, and he inwardly groaned like the teenagers he tried to teach double biology to. "'You asked for an increased budget this year so that you could purchase some new chairs for the lab?' It was odd to frame a statement as a question, but the head teacher insisted quite regularly upon doing just that. Hmm, he replied with a tone he hoped was as ambiguous as the sound. They could both tell where the conversation was heading, not least because they'd been having variations of the same exchange for the previous five years. I'm afraid, the head teacher started, and he knew how the sentence would end without having to listen to it. So he didn't. He'd never been a man of action, so he was a little surprised when, at the end of the day, he found himself taking one of the chairs from his lab out to the car. He popped it fairly discreetly in the boot and drove off. Once home, he wasn't entirely sure where to put it. His girlfriend gave him a very odd look, but didn't break her silence. She was still ignoring him from the argument they'd had about her parents the previous week. By Thursday, he had three year tens standing while he dictated notes and the others sat. All three chairs were safely lodged in his dining room. The children started to complain loudly of their discomfort. He tried to hide his spreading grin. 
Mr. Hart, the head teacher asked, sticking her head in at the lab door. He was frantically adding equations to the board in lilac chalk. Why are those pupils standing? We don't have enough chairs. I added it as a budget item. You seem to be aware, he replied loftily, biting the inside of his cheeks to maintain facial decorum. The head teacher harumphed, and nothing further was mentioned. At home, it was no longer possible to open the dining room door. Taddy wooden chairs stretched everywhere. They were curiously unstackable. His girlfriend had started sleeping in the spare room. By the end of the month, every child had to stand in each of his lessons. For good measure, he had taken his own stool home as well. He found that it made everyone focus a little more, himself included. The chemistry experiments that were determined by the syllabus went better than they ever had before. An air of seriousness pervaded the atmosphere of the classroom. He left school early each day, feeling smugger than he had the previous day. Chairs greeted him guiltily when he entered his house. A row of them lined the hallway as though the house was leading a double life as a dentist's surgery, and the hall was the waiting room. The chairs took up every available space, and he climbed across two en route to the fridge. The spare room was no longer spare, but filled with chairs. His girlfriend had moved back into the bedroom. It was the only space not invaded by chairs. It had forced them to talk, and talking had forced them to make up, or design a kind of workable truce that passed as a relationship. On November 5th, the day the new plastic-swaddled stools arrived at school, he built himself a bonfire in the backyard. Spurred on by the squealing whizzes and adrenaline-inducing bangs of a nearby firework display, he added chair after chair to the blaze. The leatherette didn't burn, but melted stickily, giving off an alarming smell. He started ripping it from every seat and flinging it over the neighbor's fence. Lit with the inviting, exciting warmth, he labored. Late into the night, he prodded and stirred, till each chair was ash. Thanks for listening to the No Extra Words podcast. For more information on today's stories and contributors, or to learn how to submit your own work, please visit us at noextrawords.wordpress.com. The best support you can give the show is to recommend us to your family and friends. See you next time.